Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege of worship today. We thank you for the inspiration of these children of young families who are learning about Jesus. These older young people who are willing to give of their time and energy to go and do things in the name of Jesus. And we pray that you will help each one of us to think today about our loyalty and love for you in such a way that our eyes and ears and hearts may be open to your truth and that we may be swift to do your will. We ask that the Holy Spirit will truly guide the gifts which we bring and superintend their use so that they will be used for the glory of our Redeemer. And now make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I was inspired by these young people a while ago. Uh, one of them must have been from Los Angeles when I heard about that brick throwing. <laughs> but I'm very happy that uh, they are doing such good work and want to do helpful uh, in witnessing in a very specific, I started to say concrete way, uh, <laughs> for the Lord. Uh, Richard and I have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We came to the part in the Sermon on the Mount where our Lord teaches us how to pray. And in teaching us how to pray, he presents to us what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer which he taught his disciples. Now I suppose that about every one of us here this morning would reckon ourselves to be a disciple of the Lord. And being his disciple, we think about this prayer which he taught his very first disciples to pray. It's easy to gloss over this prayer and think that we have prayed it uh, when we really haven't prayed it. Um, I have quite a collection of things that little children often say and have been overheard to say when saying the Lord's Prayer. Hello, Ed, for Halloween. And uh, lead us not into Penn Station. And uh, <laughs> one little girl in Scotland, when I was in school in Scotland, uh, I used to go to the city of Perth, P-E-R-T-H. John Akers has been there, I'm sure, and Bob Neal and others. And uh, this little girl was saying the Lord's uh, Prayer, and she said, May thy will be done in Perth as it is in heaven. And uh, <laughs> she had the right idea because that's where the rubber meets the road. Now you take your bulletin so that we'll all read the same translation. And let's read together uh, this scripture as a unison reading. Let's read on the bulletin, the printed text. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave therefore falling down prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will renew everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slaves fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Amen. There are six petitions that we reckon in the Lord's Prayer. Three of the petitions are for God's greater, greater glory and three for man's need. The first three is the, have to do with the honoring of his name. Hallowed be thy name. The second has to do with the coming of his reign, his rule. The third has to do with the doing of his will. That's what I spoke on a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. Then for our human wants, we pray for daily bread. And then we pardon and we pray for protection. Now the reason that I'm taking the petition about pardon is that I have to go this week to uh, Duke uh, for a medical checkup on my heart. And Richard and I had assigned each other, he had assigned this actually, uh, this portion to me and he will take the fourth petition next Sunday so we're, we swapped Sundays on this. It's not that we don't know the Lord's Prayer, it's just that we <laughs> had to change it around. So today I have the one that deals with pardon. Now to illustrate this, we have to think about the family of God. In thinking about the family of God, a family cannot operate apart from forgiveness. Forgiveness is essential. 
pardon is essential. And here, when we read about this, we are brought promptly into the praying of this prayer and whether we really mean it or not. Robert Louis Stevenson <clears throat> grew up. He went out, he came over here to this country part of the time, then finally went to Tahiti. And what he, his custom was always to have family worship at night and he got up one evening and left quickly when the family was saying together the Lord's Prayer. And later when his wife, who thought he was ill, uh, had become sick and had left the room because of sickness, went to him and said, what happened? He said, when I came to the petition that said, forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors, he said, I couldn't say it and mean it. And so I got up and left the room. I'm glad that he was honest enough to admit that because true forgiveness is more than writing a note saying to someone on a piece of paper, I'm sorry for something that happened. It's more than some words that we speak. Here taught plainly that we are to forgive from our heart. In the Bible, the heart is looked upon as the seat of our emotions, the seat of our deepest feelings. And there, we have to let forgiveness work its way out. Our Lord Jesus, in teaching us the need for pardon, wants us to know that he understands perfectly well how difficult forgiveness can be. Forgiveness is the rarest thing in the universe because true forgiveness means that we have to swallow our own wrath and let the other person go scot-free. And to do that, we have to have the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So Jesus illustrates this later by answering a question that Peter asked. Peter had come up to Jesus evidently to set himself up in a good position. So Jesus came up to Peter and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now that's a lot of times. And Peter thought he was being very generous. And Jesus said unto him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now that's 490 times. And you don't want to be like the <laughs> Irishman who went to the priest and uh, was making confession and the priest told him that he had to forgive a brother for whom he was holding grudge. And the father, the priest said to him, uh, you know what our Lord taught that you have to give up to... 70 times 7. He said, 490 times? And he said, yes. And he said, Father, I'll do it. But heaven help him when I get to the 491st. <laughs> well, uh, what we're trying to learn is the spirit of forgiveness. And that's what, uh, this is a Hebrewism that is meant to teach us that you keep on forgiving. Each of us has to, have to ask for forgiveness 
our husband, our wives, our children. Uh, we are constantly doing this in the family. And when we learn how to forgive from the heart, it makes things work much more smoothly. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus, that is, that over which he reigns, may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And as we read a moment ago, when he came to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent has nothing to do with skill or ability. The word talent here is a unit of measure, like a kilo or pound. And Herod the Great, who was one of the richest men in antiquity, his uh, salary, 100 talents a year, that was the income that, and revenue that he brought in. We have a son that many of you know, Frank, our middle son, who studied at both Cambridge and at Duke and is a New Testament scholar. And I called Frank last night and I said, explain this thing to me because um, I'm getting all kind of different information from the commentaries about uh, talents. And he said, well, this is a sum that is astronomical. It would literally mean billions of dollars today uh, by the adjusted for inflation. Uh, he said it is a, an enormous debt, an, a debt that could really never be paid back. Uh, and he said, you want to keep this in mind when you're preaching about this, because also the other debt is not insignificant, which means that it does take some real forgiving to forgive. But since he did not have the means to pay, that's this man who owed the billions, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. The slave falling down prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Well, he couldn't repay him everything. That would literally be impossible for him to do. But he says uh, that he would repay him everything and the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But then this man goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii, one denarii, according to my New Testament scholar, says uh, a one denarii is a day's wage. So a hundred days work uh, is not an insignificant amount, but it is paltry by comparison to that huge amount. Now what the Lord Jesus is teaching us is that the debt that was paid in order for us to be which led him to the cross where he bore our iniquities and where he died in our stead is so great that the forgiveness which we extend to others is, is significant but it is paltry by comparison. Now let me explain quickly that there are two failings that often come in here. As a pastor of now over 40 years of experience, I have had husbands who have been unfaithful to their wives come and say, well, she has to forgive me 
because she is a Christian. That's not a proper understanding of either marriage or of what Jesus is teaching here. Forgiveness is the bearing of the wrath of the other person and swallowing that bitter pill and letting them read. And that's very hard to do. But it can be done when we remember what Jesus has done for us. Yesterday, I was looking through some tapes that I had and I found a tape that Sam, our older son, had brought back from the American Psychiatric Association's convention in New Orleans last spring. And I put it on to play it. It was by Dr. Robert Coles, who is a distinguished child psychiatrist. Dr. Coles was doing his residency in New Orleans, Louisiana, during the time when the federal courts had ordered the school system of New Orleans to be integrated. There was a tiny, beautiful, little six-year-old Negro girl by the name of Ruby Bridges. And one day when U.S. Marshals were on either side of her, trying to take her into primary school, great crowds of people rushed in street, screaming horrible, abusive language at a little, little six-year-old child. Dr. Coles was walking and got caught in this crowd. And he went up to a policeman and said, what on earth is going on? And the policeman said, this school is being integrated by the little girl. And the US Marshals were flanked on either side of her. And he noticed that she was lovely. She had a bow in her hair. Her dress was starched and clean. And that he could see her lips moving. And she went into the school house. And Robert Coles, who has written book after book after book on the effects of stress on children, watched this child. He went back to the school, went inside and asked the school teacher if he could please speak with the little girl. Then he asked if he could go to her home and Dr. Coles told all of this last spring at the uh, meeting of the American Psychiatric Association to all those psychiatrists. And Sam said that in listening to him, there wasn't a dry eye in that bunch of uh, doctors who were there at that meeting. The little girl's parents had both been fired from their jobs because they had allowed their child to be uh, the one who would lead in integrating that school. He was the first white person who had ever gone inside that home. He said that he noticed a Bible and he asked Ruby Bridges, the little girl, about her experience and she, he said to her, um, what were you saying to those people in the crowd? And she said, I wasn't saying anything to those people. 
And he said, I saw your lips moving. What were you doing? And she said, I was praying for them. And he said, why? And she said, don't you think they needed it? <laughs> Little six-year-old girl. Now, she's a grown woman and a teacher now and has four children of her own. But he was astonished that she could take such abuse and such stress and yet reply in such a loving way, six years old. So he said, where did you learn how to do this? And she showed him a picture in the Bible of Jesus being nailed to a cross. And she said, Jesus prayed for the people that were nailing him to a cross. And he said to pray for these people. So she prayed for them. And this, of course, got to Dr. Coles. And he saw what true forgiveness can really do. It's really miraculous what forgiveness can do. Here is a little girl in that condition, in that situation, and she prays for these people. And the Lord begins to work not only in her heart, but in the hearts of other people. You see, if you are a person who has any of the goodness of God in you, you can't be comfortable or happy inside when you're doing someone else wrong. Your peace will be broken. It will be taken away. And so here Jesus says the enormous debt is that debt on the cross which he is going to later show more clearly to his disciples. And that because of his love for us, he is enabling us to forgive. And he wants us to see how foolish it is to hold on to the debts which other people uh, may owe us by comparison. He wants us to understand that. Now, how do we come to this place of forgiving from the heart? You know, I'm interested in this parable. I've studied the Bible for years. Uh, that the fellow servants were the ones who came to the king and told him about this. They knew it was unfair. And they came to the king and told him. So he sent for that first man and revoked the pardon that he had given to him. Jesus is teaching us that if we want forgiveness ourselves, then we have got to forgive. That's not optional. Uh, we, we've got to forgive. In that forgiveness, we die to self in order that Christ may live through us, for the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And as we learn that love which Jesus shows, we begin to see in the other person something worth forgiving. Little Ruby Bridges 
six years old, could say to the wise psychiatrist from Harvard, don't you think they need praying for? She knew they needed praying for, and she was praying for them. She wasn't praying for her own protection or safety. She was praying for the other people. Do we pray for other people in that same way? And if we do, what a difference it would make in lives toward achieving that forgiveness. Now, there are two things that always come to my mind when I speak about forgiveness. Of course, uh, you just simply can't go through this without thinking about the Merchant of Venice and the speech which Portia makes in that remarkable play. Shakespeare phrases it so beautifully and so perfectly because here is Shylock and I don't mean to be anti-Semitic but Shylock is the Jewish merchant who has come down hard upon Antonio who has a friend by the name of Bassanio who loves and is married to Portia and uh, Antonio, the merchant, had sent his ships out to sea, believing that they would come. They were all wrecked at sea, and he lost his fortune. And so he could not pay Shylock the Jew money which he had borrowed from him for his friend Bassanio so that he could marry Portia. Well, Portia goes in the robes of a lawyer and comes into the court of the Duke in Venice and speaks a wonderful speech. The scene, if you can get it from the library, get the Merchant of Venice and, and watch it. Watch it very carefully because the gorgeous courtroom scene takes place and uh, the Duke is there with his robes and, and all of the people are gathered and and Shylock the Jew comes in with his balances because he had made a deal that he would get a pound of the merchant's flesh if he could not pay back his debt by such and such a date. And he didn't pay it by that date, and so he gets the, to take the pound of flesh. And Shylock is whetting his knife when he comes in to cut from this bankrupt breast a pound of flesh nearest to his heart. And uh, he even pulls the hair from his head and cuts it with a knife. Uh, he wants to impress upon all of the court that he wants the penalty and the forfeiture of his bond. And Portia says to Shylock, He can't pay this money. He's got money that will be given to him to pay it off, but the Jew does not want that. He wants that pound of flesh. And she tried to get him to take it, and she said, you must show him mercy. And Shylock says, on what compulsion? What makes me have to show him mercy? And that's when the famous words that the quality of mercy is not strained, it's not compelled. 
The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. And earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. Now that's beautifully said. That's one of the greatest speeches in all of literature. It teaches us all mercy. And that mercy comes home quickly. I want to close by telling you the other day when I went down to Greenville for the service for Henry Simpson, who was my very dear friend. Uh, Henry never quite got over the Civil War. And uh, uh, he was rather an unreconstructed rebel. And uh, in 1964, when Mr. Johnson was elected president, I had to help Billy Graham with something. And in response, uh, it was something that had to do with Abraham Lincoln. And I'm a great admirer of Lincoln. Uh, Billy gave me a tall statue of Mr. Lincoln in bronze with his tall hat. Well, Henry and I often argued about Lincoln, <laughs> and uh, I could always tell when Henry would come by to see me, and I would not be in my office, always take my statue of Lincoln and turn it around with Lincoln's, facing, Lincoln's face to the wall. <laughs> and so I would know Henry Simpson had been by <laughs> because he'd always turn my statue around. And I went down to see him, of course, and say my goodbye to him a week before the Lord took him to himself. And uh, uh, I was sitting back there in my study, very sad and thinking about Henry and praying for him. And I looked over at Lincoln's statue, and I thought, well, in honor of Henry, I ought to go over and turn his statue to the wall. <laughs> and then I went over to turn it around. And I thought, no, Lincoln is with Jesus. Pretty soon Henry's going to be with Jesus. Doesn't make any difference now. <laughs> They're both good friends. And so I turned the statue back around. I turned it back around because when you get to the end of life, what difference? do some of the grudges that we hold make. They don't make a bit of difference. We let go of them. Paul had been Saul of Tarsus who had seen Stephen stoned to death. And Augustine was the one who told us that Stephen's prayer was answered when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lay not this sin to that man's charge. Because 
later Saul of Tarsus is converted and Stephen's prayer was answered and now in heaven Stephen and Paul are great friends we need to let go now and there is a hymn which we're closing with right now the hymn is 106 now look at the third stanza perverse and foolish oft I strayed but yet in love he sought me and on his shoulder gently laid and home rejoicing brought me now the Savior is here this morning and he comes to each one of us asking us is there someone you need to forgive and I say to you as the Savior's spokesman let go let go of any grudge that you hold against anyone right now let go of it and let God fill your heart with the love of Jesus he will enable you to see what he wants you to see in that other person and that means you forgive from your heart and what a step towards salvation that makes let's conclude our worship by singing the hymn numbered 106 to the tune columba the king of love my shepherd is the 106th hymn Let us receive the benediction. Father, we bless you that you have said to us plainly in your word, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And now unto him who loved us, and loosed us from our sins in his own blood, and made us to be kings and priests unto God. Unto him alone be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.